It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to Bits and Pieces podcast for April 2023. I'm Fiona McGregor and I'm delighted to be joined in the studio with my teammate James. Great to have you here, James. Hello, glad to be here. And we're going to start off this month's roundup with two contrasting views of Scotland. These both came up at the recent Festival of Economics held in Dundee. And if you'd like to know more about that, check out Scotonomics website. The first clip comes from John Helge Egelson, former head of the Icelandic Central Bank. And he just has such a positive view of Scotland that we thought that this would be a nice place to start this month's podcast. There's a deep connection between Scotland and Iceland. And to me, it feels most like home. But you have such a rich, rich history, and you have all these great thinkers. The, the, the cradle of economics is here. Mm-hmm. Adam Smith. Smith, I mean, he's, he was not, he at least lived in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. You have David Humes, you have all these great thinkers. And this story, you had this you know, Scottish kingdom, you lost your independence in 1707, okay? We lost our independence in 1262. It's, it's up to you what you want to do, but I mean, you have, you have the resources, you have the country, you have the people, you have the history, you have the ocean around the island, you have the energy. You, if you want to be independent, I mean, it's, um, obviously it's possible, it's, it's not a problem, it's just, you know, what you want to do. Sometimes it's good to remind ourselves of how Scotland is seen from outside. Also, I'm sure we've all heard people who make the point that, well, it's a 300-year-old union that you'd be unpicking. How difficult would that be? And yet, there we had Iceland lost their independence in 1262, didn't regain it until 1944. And look at them. You know, it just shows we can do this. 300 years is nothing. The Romans were here for 400 years. But before we get too pleased with ourselves, one of the presenters from the Festival of Economics had an interesting take on Scotland's position compared to what's going on in Wales at the moment. And it wasn't very easy listening, but actually I think there's things we can take on board from this. So I interviewed the the first future on generations commissioner in the world, Sophie Howe, which was a post created by the Welsh government um, after they passed their Future Generations Act, which they can do because they have devolved powers. And they have completely restructured their economy. Their economy is now based around seven long-term goals. They've gotten rid of GDP as a mode of uh, measuring prosperity. They've restructured their curriculums. They've, uh, they've launched the world's first climate crisis college. Um, they've just announced that there will be no new roads built in Wales because of the carbon emissions, right? And I was like, this is amazing. How, do I, how, are, you, how are you doing it? And she went, what do you mean, how are we doing it? We're just doing it. And I said, but, what, but you're not independent. She said, you're wasting your... Like, Scotland, all you do in Scottish politics is bang on about independence instead of getting things done with the devolved powers that you already have. And I think that's a big part of this as well. We have devolution. We have devolution of our education. We have it of our healthcare system. We have a huge amount of power already. And 
so much is going into the independence debate, and I understand why, and it's important to me too. But I think if, Scot if the Scottish government wants to show that they can be independent, start making the changes that we need to see already, especially around the climate crisis, and then you will get your independence from a nation that backs you, that says, God, yes, thank you, and we can export that blueprint to the world. We can do what Wales is already doing. It was quite an eye-opener for me, what's going on in Wales, and I think we'll probably come back to that in a future podcast and explore it a bit more, but were you surprised to hear that? I certainly was. I think it's challenging because it's essentially calling us out. Yeah, it's saying, well, you have some things you can do, but you're not doing them, which unfortunately echoes the Tory thing of get back to the day job. Absolutely. And Labour as well. They sort of go, you're not using the powers you've got. Yeah, there's some hypocrisy there as well in that they tend to also drag everything back to independence as well, almost as a way of like gumming up works. It's the politics of opposition right now. Having said that, there is still a grain of truth in that. We are not doing as much as we could with our current set of powers. And it's interesting seeing the desire for independence being positioned as a barrier to what we could be as opposed to an enabler. Yeah, I would say that it's important to take the positive viewpoint moving forward that, yes, we should start absolutely examining these things and trying to just get on with stuff in the meantime. But you know, The Labour Party in Wales is quite happy to work with pro-Indy Plaid Cymru. The Labour Party in Scotland, just a branch office of a unionist party in England, is not willing to step out of line at all. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. For the next section of this month's Bits and Pieces, we thought we would turn the spotlight on the media. First up, MP Philippa Whitford refuses to let Gary Robertson's hectoring and interruptions get in the way of her point. You have that protection by your employer, by any public body. But it's not about so the certificate. It's, it's, certificate about, it's about the different not. ages, for instance, and operating well, in different parts different of the UK and that being marriage, challenged. Gary. We've different ages of marriage. Scotland had different ages for centuries. They realigned in the 20th century. And just last month in England, they were changed again. So, you know, are we saying that people who go on holiday from Scotland to England are suddenly unmarried? It's not the about going on holiday. It's not act. about going on holiday. It's about equal pay, for instance, which gives you, you have a legal right to that, for instance. That's not, um, nothing to do with different ages of marriage. But if there are different ages of, of, of uh, gender, different ages of changing your gender, then and that could leave employers, for instance, open to legal challenges, couldn't it? No, because the Equalities Act gives you that protection whether you have a certificate or not. And that's what I'm saying. There's no mention in the Equalities Act of requiring a certificate. And it already says that a person does not require to be under medical supervision. The WHO no longer recognise the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, which is the entire basis of the 2004 Act. You don't need to have had surgery or be on drugs or do anything else. You need that diagnosis and you need to live in your acquired gender for two years. So you actually have to live in your acquired gender before you get a gender recognition certificate. So the certificate, we don't check certificates or do physical examinations of people when they are going into all women's spaces. And the, the bodies that came out supporting this bill, Rape Crisis Scotland, in gender, Scottish Women's Aid, they have all been managing, respecting trans people and protecting women since 2010. And frankly, if we were to just simply allow a bill that was worked on so long with no input 
nothing raised by the UK government, either during the advanced stage of it or during its passage. Indeed, Theresa May was putting forward the same leg- legislation in 2017. She was had the same do plan. You, you, that was only abandoned in September 2020. Do you agree with uh, Nicola Sturgeon's assessment just a couple of months ago that those who are critics of these reforms are cloaking their transphobia, misogyny and racism? No, I don't. I think, unfortunately, the public discourse around it, particularly fueled by social media, has just become so aggressive. It's just not possible to have the debate. And I think there's been people on both sides of the argument that have raised that temperature. So women are concerned. They don't feel their concerns have been soothed. And trans people feel they're being turned into a political football. Well, surely when it comes to soothing those concerns, the answer here is for Holyrood to look again at this legislation and try to find some middle ground rather than ploughing ahead with this legal action. But it's how to find the middle ground. If you read the statement of reasons that was published, basically half of it was just, we can't have something different. Well, I'm sorry, that's the basis of devolution. And the other half... Well, Hamza are suggesting there is about, no middle ground on, either, Gary, that what has been passed of, here is, is correct and needs to be enacted. The other half of reasons were about the Equalities Act. There was nothing in the statement of reasons that would allow you to modify the act. And both Alistair Jack and Kebby Badenoch have refused to come to the Equalities, Human Rights and Civil Justice Committee in Holyrood to explain what are the changes that could be made that would allow the bill to pass. Isn't the- so what is the Scottish Parliament meant to just keep randomly passing bills with tweaks to them and hoping eventually one of them is accepted? Isn't the reality here that this either way is not going to end well for Hamza Yousaf? We heard earlier from Maggie Chapman that in essence, had he not challenged this, the Greens would have walked away from the Butte House Agreement. But we know that fewer than one in five Scots support a court challenge. We know that the country and your party is completely divided on the issues around this bill as well. There is no win here for Hamza Yousaf, is there? Well, if you look at the original consultation, 60% of the public supported the principle of the bill. But then the Isla Bryson case came along and people saw how it worked in reality. Yeah, and I've already talked about how poisoned the public debate has become. But if the Scottish government did not try to defend devolution, you know, the first ignoring of a legislative consent motion was in 2012. But yet they have been left, right and centre in all the Brexit legislation. But people We're have seen, the, seeing people the seen this. People government have seen this. Legislating in devolved areas. We're already seeing them ignoring legislative consent motions. So to not, when this was passed by two thirds of MSPs after nine months of process that the UK government didn't even respond to. Kemi Badenoch rocked up three days before the final Well, she, she had spoken to uh, Shona Robson beforehand. There had been exchange of letters, etc. But just yeah, on, Shona the Robinson, just on why Shona the... Robinson wrote in October and she answered a couple of months just later. Just very briefly, if you wouldn't mind, what, on, on why the public are divided on this. The Isla Bryson case came to the fore after this legislation was passed. Is someone in Isla Bryson's situation, some Someone who should be uh, eligible for a gender recognition certificate after declaring self-identifying for three months. The Isla Bryson case happened under the current legislation, not under the new legislation. But under the new legislation, in, someone in Isla Bryson's new, position would be new, able to self-declare after three months. No, I'm asking you, in principle, do you agree with that? Under the new legislation, 
the police are informed if someone is on the sex offenders register who applies for a certificate, and they can also block someone who is under investigation for a sexual offence. There's no such protection in the 2004 Act. The only person who can challenge a certificate is the Secretary of State, and how often is that going to happen? So actually there are more protections regarding something like the Isla Bryson case now under the Scottish legislation than there is under the current legislation. Does that strike you as a, a good interview? You know, what, what do you make of that sort of hectoring? I mean, the Isla Bryson case is just, you know, that's desperation when they're throwing that in because it's got nothing to do with the, the current act that they're talking about. Well, again, that's going to depend who you ask. For you and me, then no, that's a terrible interview. It was full of leading questions and, yes, as you say, aggressive badgering. But to the kind of person to whom he is trying to speak, people who would support that kind of thing, they're going, oh, yeah, challenge him on that point. Oh, dang it, she had an answer for that one. Kind of how they're going to see it. But, yeah, yeah so it's, it's really just a case of audience. SNP MP and media spokesperson John Nicholson going up against Kevin McKenna from The Herald. Ooh, wonder who's going to win that one. The Scottish journalist Kevin McKenna wrote a series of bizarre lies about me this weekend in his Sunday Herald column. He alleged that I was spreading conspiracy theories about MI5. So how did this happen? Well, as with so much disinformation, it all began with this dreadful rag, the Daily Express. Rubbish paper publishes lots of nonsense, mostly about Meghan Markle. And they ran an article saying that an SNP MP was spreading conspiracy stories about MI5, and they used a picture of me to illustrate the non-story. Inevitably, that was picked up by the usual suspects, including the Scottish Tories, and then it was tweeted and retweeted in the usual way. All lies. Many of the Tories deleted when I threatened them with a bit of legal action. So I thought the story had run its course, but then along bumbled Kevin McKenna, of the Herald on Sunday. He picked up all the nonsense from the Express. He embellished it with a really nasty tone. It was defamatory. So I complained to the Herald and I've had the Herald editor on the phone. She has apologised without reservation for what Kevin McKenna said. And we're now talking about where the apology should appear and how much money they should give to charities of my choice. I want newspapers to survive and flourish. I'm a journalist myself. So although this was defamation, although I could get a lot of money for it, that's not really my motivation. I just want to drive up standards because I don't think any of us want politics to be in the gutter and the press to be in the gutter. I'll keep you posted. Yes. Where's the independence angle? We're talking about defamation here. We know that in Scotland, there is no Scottish media. It's all unionist media, most of it from the country next door or even further afield. It's unusual, actually, to have RMPs fight back as clearly as that. I mean, I get your point, which is that, yes, we would like to have a effective and ideally truthful press. It has been the case for many years now that that has not necessarily been the case all over the world. Well, that's true, as Fox News also found out this week with their $787 million settlement with Dominion. Here's how CNN reported the news. Fox trying to put a positive face on what can only be interpreted as 
one of the ugliest and most embarrassing moments in the history of journalism. Fox issued a statement saying, quote, we are pleased to have reached a settlement of our dispute, dispute, with Dominion voting systems. We acknowledge the court's rulings, finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. The settlement reflects, I'm sorry, this is going to be difficult to say with a straight face. This settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. We are hopeful that our <laughs> sorry. We are hopeful that our decision to resolve the dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward from these issues. Unquote. So do we think that fining media even at that level is going to make any difference? Tried and tested. That's how you make people buy newspapers, is you put a story which is almost absurdly either negative or you know, spun in such a way that people go, oh my god, I can't help but grab a copy of this. I can't wait to see, oh, it's, it's not as bad. Oh, I see they've backtracked a little bit. Oh, right. And that bit there is merely alleged. And then by that point, it doesn't matter. They've already bought the paper. The money's already gone into the pocket of the person who printed the story. So with something like this, yeah, if you're lucky, they'll play it safe for the next couple of weeks and then they'll be back to business as usual. In a way, that is actually not as bad as what looks to me to be a campaign to distort the truth. Look at what's going on currently in the reporting about the, the woes that the SNP is going through. High profile arrests being presented as if it's a confirmation of guilt. The concerted efforts to smear everything to do with the Scottish government. It's not just coming out of Scotland. Yeah, you're right. There is there is always an angle and a slant to these things, and it's, it does go beyond the money. They're not even looking for someone to buy the paper. They just need to walk past the headline yeah. on a bus, on a newsstand, something like that, and is then a seed in their mind. And they'll go yeah. and go, oh, well, if I don't have the time and if I'm busy working, then I'm not going to challenge that thought immediately. I'm not going to go and do any research. After the arrest of Peter Murrell, the Scottish police were warning the media to be careful what they reported because as a live proceeding, contempt of court could become a factor. So the interviewer here immediately trying to open up the conversation into areas that she's just been told they shouldn't go into. The person being interviewed in this case was Amar Anwar, who's a civil rights lawyer, refusing to play the game despite quite a lot of provocation. And as a lawyer, I would remind everyone of two things. Firstly, everyone is entitled to a presumption of innocence. And secondly, proceedings are live. So speculation is unwise and potentially in contempt of court. And do you think now, looking back, that the police investigation, which was live for 18 months, perhaps was part of the decision-making process that Nicola Sturgeon went through when she decided to stand down? I don't know what the, the basis of, obviously, we heard what Nicola's... Um, what, she, what she said was the basis for why she she stepped down. I don't know whether it did form part of any decision-making um, process. That's a matter for Nicola to, to decide. Of course, people will now be questioning as a result of um, the police actions today whether that played any role in, in her decision to step down. So do you think, just because I mean, obviously you were heavily involved in, in, in the Yes campaign, do you think when people are asked to donate, do you think that they were being asked to donate or thought they were donating to a possible Indie Ref 2, or do you think they were being asked to donate to the general SNP coffers? Kirsty, again, I, I'm not going to step into the, the, the realms of potentially what is a live investigation. That's a matter for the police to carry out an investigation and come to any conclusions at the end of the day. Um, I, and I don't have what exactly what people are being asked to denote to or not donate to. I haven't seen what the, the actual catch lines are. I haven't seen the actual documents that, that people signed up to.
that's really a matter that the police should be carrying out an investigation. As I said at the start, um, there's no room for speculation here. No, but I, I was just meaning more broadly. I think that you, you wonder what, what attention people pay when they're actually you know, pro something. So, for example, you, know, you were involved in the Yes movement. Not everybody in the Yes movement was part of the SNP. And I think there's two very different things at play here. And as someone that was a leader in the Yes movement, tell me, was there any real recognition of that? And do you think going forward that things will change? I think the first thing is that for everybody to recognise the independence cause is not owned by the SNP. It doesn't take away from the fact that today, whatever happens with the fortunes of the SNP, whether this does have an impact um, or not, um, people remain sick and tired of being dictated to by Westminster. And it wasn't about the SNP. It's not about Nicola. It's not about Alex. It's a, independence for the people involved in the Yes movement was about the future of our country, about a children's future, about a dream that's bigger than any one individual, about ending of poverty, ending of ignorance, inequality of opportunity. And of course, it grew. Um, the independence grew, movement grew arms and leg. And of course, the SNP was a driver driving force in that. Alex Salmon was a driving force in that. Nicola Sturgeon uh, was a driving force in that. Um, and if people, if, if you gave money to the, the, the Yes campaign, um, if you gave money to the SNP, for, in, for instance, I suspect the grey area comes into, if you gave money to fight the independence cause for the SNP, mm -hmm. then um, a, a lawyer could argue, well, if you're giving money to the SNP, then this raison d'etre is, of course, um, independence. Mm -hmm. However, I don't know the actual mechanics, yes. I don't know the details. Right, but just, just finally, broadly, because there's such a lack of trust in politics anyway, do you think politics generally has to become much more transparent? I think there's demands for that. I mean, if you compare to the scandals in England, just because, you know, the Tories were mired in corruption scandals, cash for owners, cash for questions, it didn't automatically, for instance, translate into votes for Labour because the central problem was that Labour has had its own problems, of course. But today, when people look at this, a lot of people are asking the question about police ticker tape, several police vans, forensic tents. Many, of course, are asking the question that they didn't see any of that from the police at number 10 when lawbreaking was happening right under their nose. And people are quite right to ask those questions today. People demand transparency, people demand accountability, and they want to see people fighting. When we face the worst cost of living crisis, this is almost like a, a deflection. Yeah. So, want to see answers. People want to see a future you. for the children. He handled that very well, didn't he? Despite, I'm not sure who the interviewer was, he seemed to think that the word broadly meant that you could say anything you like without fear of prosecution. Absolutely, yeah. And gets into this idea that just because the SNP has been the face of the independence movement for so long, it doesn't actually mean that with them on the ropes that it's going away. Because independence is not about an individual politician, it's not about one party. And this is, I think, what the foreign-owned press doesn't understand. They think that all you have to do is bring down Nicola Sturgeon and the rest of us all go home and vote Tory. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Let's have a look at what's been going on in Holyrood. There's not been a massive amount, despite the, the momentity of events, because it's been in recess for two of the four weeks of April. So what did you think of Hamza's first FMQs? I thought the tone was very different. And I think that might have been because there were three male party leaders. And so it had more of a sort mm. of, not testosterone fueled exactly, but there was a kind of jockeying for position, perhaps something more masculine and shouty about it than we're used to. Which is a valid point to make, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. 
They are a party, the Conservatives, that tore themselves apart over Brexit. The Tory party has had more leaders in as many months than Douglas Ross has jobs, presiding officer. This coming division, coming from a man who said that if he was Prime Minister for one day, the only thing he would do would be to hammer the rights of one of the most marginalised communities in the country. So I'll take no lessons on division from Douglas Ross. Social Security is being led by the Cabinet Secretary. It's a Cabinet position. Cabinet Secretary for Social Justice. She's sitting right there. She's waving right at you. Wouldn't it be better to have the full powers over Social Security in our hands, the full powers of, over the finances, the full powers over employment, all in our hands, instead of being at the mercy of a UK government? And that's the difference between Pam Duncan Glancy and I. She wants to keep those powers in the hands of the Conservative Party. I want to make sure they're in our hands. They literally took money out of the pockets of those on universal credit yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah. Let me say to Jeremy Balfour, no one believes his crocodile tears for those that are suffering as a result of Tory cruelty, presiding officer. By the second FMQs, I thought his tone was a lot better. So let's listen to this example of dealing with a very provocative question. Will Hamza Youssef agree to make a statement to Parliament on the financial scandal engulfing the party of government here in Scotland. Um, what I would say to, to Mr Ross is that obviously in terms of standing orders, First Minister's questions is the opportunity to put questions to the First Minister that fall within the responsibilities of the First Minister as First Minister and of course the responsibilities of his government. And therefore I, I'm not entirely clear that that question has met the requirements of standing orders. Um, I, I, I'm looking at the First Minister to see if he has anything he wishes to add to what I've said, First Minister. I am happy uh, to answer the question. I, I know there are uh, some, of course, serious issues for the party that I lead, the SNP, to address. I'm not going to shy uh, away from that, uh, presiding uh, officer. That's why in my very first act as SNP leader, attending my very first National Executive Committee, I'm pleased that we got agreement from that committee. They elected uh, the body uh, that oversees the party uh, that is elected by our members to a review into transparency and governance, and not only into a transparency and governance review, but one that has external input, particularly in the issues of financial oversight. So, of course, that is an important job, an important role for me to take forward as leader of the SNP. But let me also say that what I am doing and what the government I lead, what we are doing collectively, is focusing relentlessly on the day job. That is why, yeah. in the first few weeks of being First Minister, I, not I didn't just double the fuel insecurity fund, I made sure we tripled yeah. the fuel insecurity fund. Now, I know Douglas Ross won't want to talk about that because, of course, it lays bare the harm the Tory cost of living crisis is doing to households up and down the country. But that's also why, in the first few weeks as First Minister, I made sure I focused... I will suspend proceedings, First Minister. Please resume your seat. And as you heard there, FMQs was briefly suspended because of a protester in the gallery. But I was much more impressed with Hamza on that outing. His tone was more measured, and in later questions, when he was criticising the Tory party, he was aiming it at the party and its policies, not at individuals. No, I take your point. It's a much less confrontational style. 
Moving on now to the deposit return scheme, which, as you know, we have been covering in the last few bits and pieces. We've been reporting what has been remarkable progress against a very tight deadline. Now, Alistair Jack, emboldened perhaps by his use of Section 35 against the GRA, has been a mine of misinformation and does appear to the layman at least to be setting out to deliberately disrupt this scheme, aided of course by his pals in the Scottish Tories. In this next clip, Minister Lorna Slater explains the impact that this has had. Presiding officer, there has been significant progress by businesses, large and small, in preparing for the scheme. Around £300 million of investment has been committed in systems, infrastructure and staff time, with many businesses fully prepared to launch the scheme. The scheme administrator, Circularity Scotland, has developed the logistical network that will support the operation of the scheme, and ground has been broken on sites across Scotland, including sorting centres in Aberdeen and Motherwell that are creating up to 200 new green jobs. I am very grateful to all those who have helped make this happen. However, in recent months, progress has stalled. Presiding officer, the primary cause of this has been the uncertainty created by the continued failure by the UK government to issue an IMA exclusion. Together with public briefings against the scheme from the Secretary of State for Scotland, the effect has been corrosive, undermining confidence, stalling progress and halting private investment. Some businesses have said they will simply not join the scheme because of the UK government's position. And there has been extensive feedback from industry that they are not willing to proceed with investments until they have clarity. This is ambitious, major infrastructure scheme that affects thousands of businesses and everyone in Scotland. Readiness for August was always going to be challenging, particularly given the difficult conditions that industry has faced in recent years. But the chilling effect as a result of Westminster's position has made it impossible. Scotland's deposit return scheme will now go live on the 1st of March 2024. This gives the time needed for the UK government to fulfil its duties, and for businesses it gives a full 10 months from now to get ready for launch. It seems like having taken courage from the original blocking of the GRA, they have essentially gone, oh, what else can we get in the way of? And that was exactly the reason that they want to challenge the use of Section 35, because it's such an extreme measure. Yeah, it almost seems like they're blocking it until main UK legislation can bring in its own, and then they'll say, well, the UK government has now got a deposit return scheme that's identical to the one you were proposing, but now you're allowed to have one. The whole point of devolution is that you can do things differently. If you can refuse things on the ground, it's not exactly the same as what they're putting in place in England. You don't have devolution. You've got an English government that will outvote anything anybody else chooses to do. So in this next clip, Ross Greer explains a bit further. It's worth being really clear about the primary reason that the deposit return scheme has been delayed. It's because after Brexit, the UK government, the Tories, gave themselves a new power of veto over the Scottish Parliament called the Internal Market Act. Because of the Internal Market Act, the Scottish government now needs the UK government's authorisation for this scheme to go ahead, despite it being in a clearly 
devolved area. Why should Scotland have to wait for England on this? If the UK government had cooperated with us instead of trying to sabotage this scheme over the last two years, we would have had clarity months ago on issues like VAT rather than the length of time it took to get clarity on that. Let's be completely clear here. The Tories have actively tried to sabotage this scheme, like they're sabotaging a whole range of Scottish government initiatives using a power of veto that they gave themselves. Government Scotland didn't vote for, using a Brexit result it didn't vote for, to veto decisions made by Scotland's elected parliament that the people obviously did vote for. This is outrageous. I agree, it is outrageous. Meanwhile, back in Holyrood, further amendments have been made to the scheme to make it even more suitable for smaller businesses. Firstly, all drinks containers under 100 millilitres will be completely excluded from the scheme. This will benefit businesses in the soft drinks, wine and particularly the spirits industry who have raised particular concerns about miniatures while removing just 0.2% of articles from the scheme. Secondly, products with low sales volumes will be excluded from the scheme. This change applies to any product which sells less than 5,000 items a year. This will apply to all businesses, so a large business which has a niche product line with low sales volumes will not need to apply a deposit to that line. And a small business which only sells low volume products will not need to apply a deposit to any of their products. This change will only remove about 0.5% of articles from the scheme, but will remove the need for around 44% of businesses to apply a deposit to their products, effectively removing many of the smallest producers from the scheme. Thirdly, we plan to exempt all hospitality premises who sell the large majority of their drinks products for consumption on the premises from acting as a return point. Regulations already exempt premises that exclusively sell drinks on site, such as restaurants, pubs and nightclubs. However, many hospitality businesses also sell a small proportion of drinks to take away. Where this is the case, we agree they need not operate as a return point, given that they will already be operating a closed-loop system for drinks on sale. We will engage with hospitality businesses on the proportion of sales at which this will apply to ensure a balance between support for businesses and accessibility for customers. Another bugbear for the UK government is the inclusion of glass recycling in the scheme. So the minister explained why that was a ridiculous position, pointing out the fact that even the Tories at one point had been in favour of it, which led to a series of points of order by Maurice Golden that beautifully illustrate the old phrase, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Greenpeace says, and I quote, in what kind of world is collecting glass drinks containers not an essential part of a system designed to collect drinks containers? Honestly, of the 44 schemes around the world that already exist, 40 of them collect glass. It is normal for the glass to be part of this scheme. And indeed, Morris Golden wrote an extensive blog post on it, which he has since deleted, but I can quote you from if anyone interested in hearing what Morris Golden used to say about the benefits of glass before he rethought his position. At point of order, I have not deleted any article ever, and I think it's absolutely outrageous to be accused of that from a minister in this place. I have not changed my position on DRS, and there is no way that I should be slandered in this place by a minister of the Scottish Government. 
anyone then can presumably go onto the web and find this quote from Morris's blog post, which says that we have an opportunity to create an ambitious and inclusive UK-wide scheme, including glass, which will tackle litter and improve uh, recycling uh, rates. Point of order, Morris Gosling. The minister referred to a blog post which I've made. I have never written a blog and therefore I couldn't have published a blog and then subsequently deleted it. And I would appreciate if the minister would correct the official record because it, and apologise because it's outrageous to su suggest I have done something which I have not. And it might be considered an ab abuse of ministerial privilege to do so. Point of order from Mark Ruskell. On a further point of order, Presiding Officer, I think it is important that members uh, provide accurate information on the record. And I've just been sat here at my desk actually reading the said blog from Maurice Golden from 2019, which I believe is, on an, uh, is in an archive. So it makes a very interesting reading. And I think it's just important, Presiding Officer, that all members are accurate and truthful about their previous positions on matters of policy um, as well as their current position. A brilliant bit of comic timing there by Mark Ruskell. According to foreign-owned Tory rag The Telegraph, unelected bureaucrat David Frost has plans to take on the Scottish Parliament. The First Minister will be aware of an article in this morning's Telegraph by Conservative peer David Frost, which proposes to reduce and remove powers of devolution and undermines this Parliament. Can I ask the First Minister how his government intends to defend the powers of this Scottish Parliament from unelected Tories at Westminster, intent on dismantling devolution? And does he agree that it is for all MSPs from all parties to defend this Parliament from an attack on democracy? First Minister. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lord Frost, unelected Tory peer, gave the game away. He said the quiet bit out loud. He said what every single Scottish Conservative really thinks. He said, he said, and I'll quote him, presiding officer, not only must no more powers be devolved to Scotland, it is time to reverse that process. He said ministers should make it clear that if re-elected, they will review and roll back some of the currently devolved powers. It's hardly a surprise that the party that didn't support the Scottish Parliament now wants to dismantle the Scottish Parliament. But let me be abundantly clear, whether it's on the Section 35 veto, whether it's their inability to grant an exemption under the IMA, uh, under the Internal Market Act, whether it's the fact they want to curtail our excellent international development work or external engagement with the SNP-led Scottish Government, we will always defend our democracy and we will always defend the voice and the will of the Scottish people. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Now that's head on down to Westminster, which has also been off for the Easter recess, Stephen Flynn, when he stood up to ask his question at PMQs, probably didn't expect quite the reception he got. Leader of the SNP, Stephen Flynn. Stephen Flynn. Mr. Speaker, Mr. 
to hear that they had an equally I'm delighted to hear that they had an equally peaceful and relaxing Easter break as I did. <laughs> Mr. Prime Minister, Prime Minister, was it their refusal to stand alongside striking workers on the picket line, their acceptance of the economic damage being caused by Brexit, or perhaps their support for denying the people of Scotland the right to choose their own future, which led to the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party urging voters to back Labour? Mr. Mr. Speaker, what we're doing is not getting distracted by the things that are going on elsewhere, and we're focused on delivering for the people of Scotland. Uh, We're making sure that we fund public service as well, with one and a half billion extra pounds in Barnet Consequentials. We're making sure that we provide support with the cost of living. Now, I know, Mr. Speaker, at the moment, him and his party are focused on other matters. We're just going to motor on with the job. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, let me be clear. We will take no lectures, no lectures from a party which has not had a mandate to govern in Scotland since 1955. He went to three prime ministers in the course of just a matter of months who crashed the economy, who said mortgage rates soaring, who have taken energy support away from families most in need. Now, a prime minister has been fined by the police not once, but twice, who take donations from Russian-backed donors and who, of course, have stuffed the House of Lords with people like Baroness Moan. But, Mr Speaker, let's be clear. What we're talking about is the fact that the leader of the Scottish Conservatives believes that the people of Scotland should return Labour Party members of Parliament to this House rather than Scottish National Party members to this House. So isn't the message to the people of Scotland quite clear? Don't give the Tories what they want. I think the reference to motoring on was a pathetic attempt to refer to a camper van, which was the subject of inquiries. But if it was intended to put Stephen Flynn off his stride, I think it failed. So in relation to that Humza Yusuf point you made earlier, why is this not aggressive? Yeah, I get where you're coming from. I think the difference is that Westminster is an adversarial system. The reason the benches are laid out as they are is so that both parties are a sword's length apart. The idea being these are two warring factions. Whereas the reason they sit in a horseshoe in Holyrood is because it's supposed to be a different kind of politics. It's supposed to be collaborative and represent all the views of the country. That's why we've got proportional representation, whereas Westminster's first past the post. That is the the difference between the style of the two places. And I think what I have disliked a lot over the last while, particularly Douglas Ross, but also increasingly Anna Sarwar, the way they have both tried to bring that sort of Westminster-style aggression into Holyrood. And that's why I was quite annoyed that Humza appeared to be joining in with that. I don't think there's anything they can do about Westminster because that's that's just the way the place is. PMQs is an absolute bear pit. I mean, compared to FMQs where questions are asked and information is supplied in response, I don't think that happens with PMQs. That doesn't offend me in the way it offends me in Holyrood because that's not our parliament. Yeah, okay, I get you. It's basically we're holding ourselves to a higher standard in this case. Yeah. Stephen Flynn has very quickly made his mark at Westminster with incisive, direct questions with no punches pulled in terms of what he's asked. And I think there's kind of a, 
he has been given a lot of recognition for the, the way he's asked questions compared to the likes of Starmer who sort of woolies his way around a theme. Perhaps it just comes down to who, who you want to be doing the... Uh... It might just be favouritism. It might just be favouritism. I do have quite a soft spot for Stephen Flynn. This is true. Perhaps inspired by his Tory colleagues, the incongruously named James Cleverly decided he would also have a go at, at putting Scotland back in its box. Graceful law. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, this week my city of Dundee not only announced its flights will be connecting with Heathrow, but also the Scottish Government's commitment to Dundee being at the forefront of making Scotland a major world economy, both bringing investment, jobs and opportunity. However, the UK Government seems to have a problem with this. Mr Speaker, Scotland's international engagement is to be reduced. Despite being paid for through Scotland's wealth and taxes, UK ambassadors and diplomats have been instructed to obstruct the Scottish Government's international engagement, with every foreign nation worldwide told not to deal with the Scottish Government directly. This, Mr Speaker, has already been described as, and I quote, smacking of a parent trying and failing to control a teenager. So will the Prime Minister assure me and the businesses, wealth creators and most importantly my constituents that want to see Dundee and Scotland prosper, that while Scotland's short time left in this unequal union remains, Scotland will neither be put back in a box or will be bending knee? That was quite a shocker and they had actually told ambassadors you know, not to engage with Scots. But I mean, the Scottish Parliament has got every right to engage with other parts of the world and particularly to try and support Scottish trade and make good relationships and all that, especially given the chaos of Brexit. They, it, it seems like uh, an admission of if the UK government is so insecure that the only way they can think of of maintaining the shaky control they've got over the union is to try and prevent Scots from having any dealings outside it. And more and more, the analogy of an abusive relationship comes up. This is that sort of coercive control where you're forbidden from having your own friends and you have, you've had your money taken from you and you're told repeatedly you're useless and you never survive on your own. It's hard to see that this is not a deliberate tactic on their part. Agreed. The latest conflict to blow up is in the Sudan and Westminster Tories were celebrating the successful removal of some of their diplomats from the area. But Dave Dugan's question here reveals just how insular the UK's participation in this situation has been, certainly compared to other countries. Dave Dugan. Madam Deputy Speaker, it's uh, very welcome to have our civil servants evacuated uh, and all credit, all credit goes to the men and women in uniform who delivered that operation. The political decision to evacuate an embassy in these circumstances should be neither complex nor lengthy, so the government may wish to cease congratulating itself on that, especially as, in terms of deploying our military professionals to support ordinary citizens trapped in Sudan, the UK is trailing, as usual, just just as it did at the start of the COVID crisis when other nations stepped up to repatriate their people, as is expected in such circumstances, the UK dithered and mithered. Can the Minister explain to the House the root cause of this unfathomable inertia? Is this a tension between the Foreign Office and the MOD? And if so, is the Foreign Office saying go and the MOD is saying no, or is it the other way around? Ceasefire is the answer to this crisis, the official UK Government advice. Well, what can 
comfort that to the thousands of UK nationals still on the ground. You might as well tell them, Madam Deputy Speaker, to hold their breath while we wait uh, for food and water to run out. Meanwhile, this weekend, France evacuated 388 citizens, including Dutch. Germany airlifted 101 to Jordan. Italy and Spain have evacuated their citizens and those of Argentina, Colombia, Portugal, Poland, Mexico, Venezuela and Sudan. Turkey, 640 people, including people from Azerbaijan, Japan, China, Mexico and Yemen, and Ireland, Madam Deputy Speaker, without a tactical airlifter to its name, has evacuated its Irish nationals and is evacuating 140 more today. What it is to have friends in the world. On Radio 4 this morning, the Minister said that uh, UK nationals in in Sudan will be frustrated. Well, Madam Deputy Speaker, they're terrified. They're not frustrated. He also said no fewer than three times that if uh, UK nationals choose to independently flee, they will do so at their own risk, which rather exposes Foreign Office priorities in this crisis. In closing, the risk assessment taken by ministers, which advises UK nationals to stay put, did this factor in any assessment of access to food and water, failing sanitation or escalating violence, making future evacuations all the more hard? As Dave said, isn't it good to have friends? You're listening to Bits and Pieces. The final section of our Bits and Pieces for this month comes from a Westminster Hall debate and it was on the topic of urging the government to review the damage that Brexit has caused. The UK government had tried to dismiss this, so a petition was started off which very rapidly reached, I think it was 180,000 signatures by the time of the debate, but it's still climbing, it's still open till the middle of May. Ultimately, we're pretty sure this is all going to fall on deaf ears in the UK government. There were still some very stirring, almost lyrical speeches, and here are a couple of the best. Making his second appearance of the month on this podcast, it's John Nicholson. The historians, of course, will write in amazement about Brexit. The swagger of its proponents, the vanity, the false promises and lies, the salutary sight of focused Brussels negotiators sitting well-briefed at the negotiating table opposite a series of hapless, unbriefed Tory ministers. The laughable suggestion that other EU countries would be so envious of Brexit that they would rush to emulate it. The sage advice from our friends ignored, the Brexit enthusiasts, Trump, Farage and Putin, whose malign presence alone should have served as a warning. The campaign tinged with racism and attacks on foreigners, the misplaced triumphalism, the sheer vulgar philistinism, the disdain shown for the people of Scotland. If you're in the European Union, you can leave. But if you're in this union, your voice doesn't count. Now, we've curtailed these for reasons of time, but you can watch the full speeches on our YouTube channel, Scottish Independence Podcasts, IndiePod Extra. Stephen Bonner is up next. The latest figures show that the EU's trade intensity has indeed increased since Brexit, while the UK's has fallen by 2.8%. And yet we have our UK government who are so desperately trying to convince themselves that they have the rest of the world to trade with. The depressing reality is, Mr Dowd, that the reductions in tariffs as part of a UK-Australia deal, for example, will save UK households 
a pathetic £1.20 per household, not even enough to buy as much as a stick of butter with today's sky-high fuel prices, alone largely caused by Brexit itself, and an economy, let us remember, that was further recklessly decimated by the previous Tory Prime Minister incumbent and Chancellor not so long ago. They would also like us to not keep talking about that as well, I would suggest. An analysis by the University of Sussex UK Trade Policy Observatory showed that Brexit losses are more than 178 times bigger than any of these new trade deal gains, each one of those losses being felt by communities the length and breadth of Scotland. So what can we do about this? Well, the reality is that only full membership would restore what we had and all that we have lost, including our credibility. However, along with the Tories, the Labour Party want no part of that. Being just as committed to Brexit, a hard Brexit, as the Tories in this place are, and that's regardless of what a few backbench MPs have said in this debate today. The damage Brexit has caused to Scotland will be long-lasting, and it is being endorsed by the UK Labour Party. Most people in Scotland were proud Remainers, and we are now proud rejoiners, because Scotland's focus should rightly be on rejoining the European Union. And post-independence, Scotland's markets will transform and expand to be able to take advantage of an EU market seven times larger than that of the UK. And UK Labour does not want that for Scotland, even though the parliamentarians in Holyrood know that it is what is right. The party leaders here in England say no. Bluntly, they are willing to throw Scotland under that big red Brexit bus to get the, th- the keys to Downing Street. And the people of Coat Bridge, Chrysler and Belsill, they don't want the same old Labour, a party that they view as a pale imitation to the Tory party today. They want those who are in touch with public opinion, who understand the impact of Brexit within and on our communities. They want those who protect and enhance their interests, not barter them off. In 2014, Labour dragged Alastair Darling and Gordon Brown out of political graves to tell Scotland that independence would threaten our membership of the European Union, would imperil people's pensions and would cause a currency crisis. Well, look where we are right now. We're out of the European Union. The UK pension plans were on the brink of collapsing. Within hours last year, NHS has lost a quarter of its workforce. The cost of food is up by 18%. 4% has been knocked off our GDP. And the sterling has lost a third of its value. These are the consequences, and people are paying the price right now. Brexit has only served to decimate our economy and damage our standing on the international stage. Further hated policies of this government, such as the Nationality and Borders Bill and Rwanda policy, cause Scottish people great anguish and embarrassment. And remaining in this isolated and insular UK union is strangling Scotland's ambition and our potential. Scotland's home is unquestionably in Europe. And to coin a a Labour phrase, the only road to Europe now runs through an independent Scotland. Next up is Alan Smith, who, whilst he agreed with the petition, still wanted to quibble with the wording. Uh, I would uh, pay tribute to the organisers of the petition and uh, the 178,000 people who have signed it. Uh, the members uh, for East and Bartonshire, Ochil and South Perthshire, Coatbridge and Chryston and Bellis Hill, and uh, Linlithgow and East Falkirk uh, all made uh, very solid contributions to the debate, as did a number of colleagues 
from all perspectives and all points of the House, uh, except perhaps the government benches, though we look forward uh, to the Minister, as I say. And on brass tax, the SNP supports this petition. Uh, we want to see evidence-based policy making. I think it's important to find out how we got to where we are if we're to plot a way forward to the solutions. But I would voice that support with, with, with a wee note of caution that I hope I can gently express some reservation over the, the perspective that the wording reveals. That uh, I quote, uh, the impact Brexit has had on this country and its citizens. Well, for the avoidance of doubt, my country is Scotland. The United Kingdom is not my country. The United Kingdom is a state. It is a union comprised of four countries. And perspective is not a synonym for a difference of opinion. We see this from a different place. Scotland has a very clear European perspective. My party is the most pro-European party in this parliament. But I also have a, a particular neuralgia with the phrase, this country and its citizens. Mr. Dowd, to my mind, the people who were most affected by leaving the EU in the way that we did were EU nationals resident in these islands, who had their lives turned upside down, who had rights that they had come to these islands to live, work, study, marry into our communities. They had them taken away, and they didn't even get a vote in it. Now, I am deeply proud of my party's ethos that if you're in Scotland, you're one of us. It's not obligatory, but you're very welcome if you want to be. I am deeply proud of the fact that the Scottish Parliament has legislated to move voting eligibility in Scottish elections, the ones we control, from nationality to residence. Now, that's a queer sort of nationalism in a continental historic European sense, but Scotland's tragedy for 250 years was that we exported our people. And it was freedom of movement from the European Union that started to get it back up again. And I am deeply proud that anyone who lives in Scotland is one of us as far as the Scottish Government is concerned. That was not the case in the EU referendum. In the independence referendum in 2014, uh, the Scottish Government quite specifically chose the European franchise for voting entitlement in order to broaden that eligibility as much as we legally could at the time. We've since broadened it further. The United Kingdom Government, despite amendments from the SNP team at that point to broaden that franchise, chose quite specifically to say 0.2 to 2.6 million people living in these islands part of our communities, part of our families, paying taxes here. It is demonstrably true that EU, EU immigrants pay far more taxes to the UK Exchequer than they took back in services. But the UK had a debate about your place in our community, about your position in our economy, about your role here, but you're not going to say in that because you're foreign, you're not one of us. That is a deeply ugly, exclusive politics, which I do hate. So I'm quite sure it's unintentional in the wording of the petition, but its citizens, I, I think, really should have a wider perspective than it does. Alan Smith also made some very good points about the democratic deficit and also the need to examine how this situation could occur so that we can protect ourselves from future distortions of the electoral system. I respect everyone who voted Leave, wherever they voted Leave, for whatever reason. And I think people who voted Leave were entitled to believe the promises that were made to them. They were entitled to believe the good faith of the politicians and others who made those promises. But the reality, frankly, Mr Dowd, is that the promises that were made have not been delivered. Now, there may be reasons why they've not been delivered, but that's why I think an inquiry would be useful in ventilating that. Now, who can forget the greatest hits? Uh, there will be no downside, only a considerable upside. 
Nobody is talking about leaving the single market. Of course, we'll keep Erasmus. We hold all the cards. All of those things. And 350 million a week for the NHS. Who wouldn't vote for that? It's remarkable it wasn't a higher result. So that is what I think needs to be ventilated, Mr Dowd. And that's why I support this petition in its aims. Uh, it, uh, because the vote was presented essentially as a risk-free, consequence-free vote. Everything you like, you'll keep. Everything you don't like or don't understand will recede from your life. Well, the reality has been really very different. I'd also, and, and I would expand the scope of the, the, the inquiry the petition seeks to have into the techniques that the Leave campaign used. Because I'm concerned that we have an ongoing vulnerability to such recklessness. I'd like to see a proper review of electoral law, data protection, campaign financing, particularly the role of dark money, uh, the, lack, the, the remarkable lack of a single, uh, single Leave campaign manifesto to hold the Leave campaign to account. A variety of promises were made, some in good faith, some perhaps less so, but they've not been delivered. We also need a proper look at the powers of the Electoral Commission and the role of broadcasters and internet providers in public information in future campaigns because I think we do have an ongoing vulnerability to recklessness. Let's, let's call it that. So that's it for April. Hope you enjoyed that. And join us again next week when we'll have another podcast episode for you, as we do every Friday. And thanks to James for joining me in the studio. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for listening. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. I'm a